Good morning. Uh, it is so nice to be here. Believe it or not, I am so nervous today. I'm not usually like this. Um, I, I wasn't at the, at the, how'd you know that? We went wrestling last night, so maybe I'll just, you know, get some of that power through me. Um, discipleship groups. Uh, let me tell you a little about my husband, myself, and my daughter. I think Victor Davis shared last week, we are transplants as well. Uh, we have no family here. Um, we have family in New England, family in Florida, family out of the country. But we were just a three-person unit. Totally thinking we were fine with that. Attended church. And then finally, some one day, someone said, oh, join a discipleship group. And I thought okay, this is going to be good. I'm going to get a free meal a week, you know, good eating. I'm going to read the word. And um, I had just been saved, and I got my first Bible. I come from a non-Christian home where I didn't see my first Bible, hold my first Bible, until I was about 53 years old. So I got this Bible, and I was all set. And it was Old Testament, New Testament, and I thought my Bible, there was an issue with it because it wasn't in alphabetical order. And so I had to work around that and figure out what was going on because I didn't want to go to this group and feel like a total nerd because I didn't know my books. And I ended up with this group that I would have never put myself together with. They were all believers. They had family members here. And despite that, I didn't feel like I was um, out of place. And I'm not sure if they know, but we're like generations apart. So if you guys didn't know that, <laughs> my group, we are. But that was okay. Because I, I had this like loving couple that I was just supposed to have dinner with you guys. That's it. But then I began to really like them and the love that they had for Jesus and every week we'd go back and just what, how they led was so loving. And I never felt like I didn't know my Bible because I didn't know my Bible. And they just fed you little by little and encouraged you. And just like they saw things about you that you didn't know about yourself. And then one day they said, Hey, we'll take your kid for a week. You guys go to New York. Talk to people. Tell them about Jesus. And I said, are you kidding me? You're going to take my kid? It's right in the middle of COVID, and she's doing virtual school. You're going to take her for a week. And then I said, wait a minute. Now I have to go talk to people and tell them about Jesus. Are you crazy? I don't know how to do this. This is scary. But you see, that couple saw things about us. They nurtured us. They supported us. They prayed for us. I have never been prayed over in my life. So, you know, the Bible tells us we're sojourners, that this isn't our home, that we're not home until we make it to heaven. But on this earth, 
it also tells us we're not supposed to go it alone. We're supposed to be in community with each other. That we sharpen each other. That we love each other. And that we spread the word of God. So I'm telling you this morning out of the love, out of my heart, if you're single, if you're married, whatever you are, you cannot go this life alone without sharpening each other, without learning from each other, without loving each other. Join a group, please. I have never been so positive about anything in my life than these people that I will spend my life with, walking each day, supporting each day, loving each other each day, and our children as well. That's all I have to say. We don't walk it alone. Thank you. Thanks, Dina, for that. There is nothing more powerful. <laughs> See you, Dina. There's nothing more powerful than an honest testimony of how the Lord is working. And um, it's really what it comes down to is it's the Lord's work, right? And so we're thankful for that. Well, today we're continuing in this sermon series that we're doing on discovering humanity. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we started this uh, little six or seven week series on what it means to be human, looking at the image of God, how that impacts and so we're going to continue today. We talked about being made in the image of God. Then we talked about what it means that the image of God fell, right, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And today we're beginning breaking down each of those characteristics, characteristics that we saw. You know, created male and image, he cre male and female, he created them in the image, image of God. Uh, he created them to have dominion, created them to be fruitful and multiply. We're looking at those different characteristics of what it means to be human, and we want to unpack them a little bit. And so today we just figured we'd come out swinging and hope the recording doesn't work. And um, that's, we're talking about male and female, he created them. That's what we're talking about today. I want to read this quote, so pay attention. I didn't write it, which means it's hard to understand because it's smarter than me. Okay, so let me read this quote. The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more, divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. Did you follow that? That was written 40 years ago by John Piper, Pastor John Piper, who's now retired. The booklet in which I read 
um, where he wrote that. It was written in 1990, published in 1990, and it was an expansion of an essay which was written years before on recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, if those words, which Piper wrote, were true in shadow 40 years ago, we can be most assured they are true in substance today, and it is a substance which we could say is abused. We live in a world which doesn't understand what equality actually is. It thinks of equality as uniformity, as a blank slate, as everyone gets a trophy, or as everyone is the same, but that diminishes and actually reduces the real beauty of equality. I love my kids equally, but differently, because they're different people. I love my sisters and my parents, but they're nothing like one another. Human beings made in the image of God have intrinsic worth and value because of our image-bearing identity, not because we are male or because we are female. It comes from our image-bearing value. Now, since Genesis chapter 3, like we talked about in the last two weeks, ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we've been trying to instruct our Creator, God, in what is right and what is wrong. And so the lump of clay since that day has been telling the potter, why have you made me this way? I just realized this almost sounds like a rap. Should I rap this part? Okay, it says, the lump of clay since that day has been telling the potter, why have you made me this way? (laughs) Don't you know I'm a coffee cup and not an ashtray? There you have it. Mic drop. Piper's words are prophetic. Piper's words were simply prophetic four decades ago because the blurring of the lines of gender has actually taken a remarkable, devastating toll on our society. There is rampant sexual confusion both in theory and in practice. It's not led to a happy and free world of genderless IKEA-style people, but it's led to sexual dysfunction, promiscuity, a declining birth rate, sexual abuse, a rise of disease, marital strife, emotional distress, and like Piper said, suicide. The point is that we've played with the matches and now the house is on fire. And so where do we turn for the truth of gender identity? Where do we uncover what maleness and femaleness, to use Piper's terms, where do we uncover what maleness and femaleness actually are by design? Do we go to drag queens at the library? Do we turn to MMA cage fighters? Do we turn to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Do we turn to TikTok? Or do we have a more reliable place to go? Indeed, we do. So let's go there. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. If we're to grasp an accurate understanding of who mankind is, then we need to begin with God. He is the creator. We are the created. He is the one who made all things, crafting them together with wisdom and goodness. We see this in Psalm 104 when it says, With wisdom he established the earth. He appointed each thing to its purpose. He is a sovereign God, and he is a, an organized God in his created order, giving things a purpose and a place. 
even a cursory view of Genesis 1 reveals this. We see that God creates spaces and he fills spaces. He creates, before he creates animals, he makes sure they have something to eat. Before he creates fish, he makes sure that they have a sea in which to thrive. And since God is a God of peace and not a God of disorder, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14.33, living within his creation means living as he intended. Can I take a fish out of water? Yes, but it will not survive long. See, God's order and reign is not so much an ultimatum to follow as an invitation to thrive within his beautiful design. And it's within that created order that things thrive the way God intended for them. See, as we encounter the last two weeks in Genesis chapter 1, human beings are seen as the climax of God's creation. They're the only ones made in the image and likeness of God. And from this unique and holy identity, they are tasked to rule creation well under the wisdom and direction of God. That humans are a unique creation. They are special and prized. The scripture narrative underscores this reality for us when in Genesis 9 it reinforces that to harm a human being is to harm an image bearer and to kill a human being, someone who has intrinsic dignity and worth and purpose and blessing, to kill them is to break a blood oath worthy of death. Although it's not explicitly stated... We know that all the other creatures that God created were also created male and female. Indeed, it would be quite challenging to be fruitful and multiply if they were not. But it's only mentioned with mankind, which should bring to your attention that our being male and our being female is a significant part of our human identity as an image bearer. As with the rest of creation, mankind's binary means two, sexed difference is necessary to fulfill God's first command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. But there's more to this difference than just the biological necessity of procreation. See, Genesis 1 focuses on our unity, on our sameness, but Genesis 2 unpacks the differences. See, Genesis 2 begins with Adam's creation. It pushes through the reality that no animal can complement Adam as God desires, and then it culminates at the end of the chapter with the world's first marriage as two parts become whole. And throughout this story, there is no question as to Adam and Eve's unity and sameness or value, but we also see that apart, something is lacking from Adam. Man is made first. God forms him from the dust. He breathes the breath of life into him, and then he receives the command from God to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He receives this command directly from God, and then after this, God puts, he tries to look for a, a, a helper, a, a compliment that will be a good fit for him, and none can be found. And so God places him in a deep slumber. He takes a rib from his side, and he uses it to fashion Eve. So theoretically, according to the biblical account, it is, God, it is Adam who warns Eve about the tree and not God. It is Adam who is responsible for what happens to her and to himself. 
See, even their names point to their origins. Adam is being made from the ground, and his name is Adam, and the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. And Hebrew word for man is Ish. And Eve is made from Adam. She's made from Ish. And so the Hebrew word for woman is Isha. Both point even in their identity to their source. We see that they're equal in bearing value as image bearers of God, but they're different in roles and responsibilities. Genesis 2 makes it clear that without Eve, there was a gap in creation. Matter of fact, it's the first time we see something not good is when the scriptures say of Adam, it is not good for him to be alone. That God says of Eve that he would make a helper fit for Adam. And immediately in our English, we get our backup. But this term helper is not a diminutive term. This term is actually used by God to describe himself later in his own relationship to humanity. That we should not view this as a position of servitude or one step down on the ladder, but as a complement, a teammate, a companion who is perfectly designed to help Adam thrive in his role in a way that nobody else and nothing else could do. Nothing else could fill that spot. Indeed, without one another, it would be impossible for the first two humans to do any of the things that God actually commanded them to do. In this perspective, as is the same case with God, the term of helper is not one of value, but of one of role. As God helps man to thrive, And to do what God commanded him to do, Eve helps Adam for mankind to thrive. How? We see in Genesis 2, by removing the thing that was not good. What is the thing that was not good? His aloneness. By removing his aloneness and then by fulfilling the great mandate together. In other words, God uses Eve to remove what was not good and then brings her to Adam so that they could do what was very good, which is the establishment and furtherment of more image bearers. Implied and extended throughout Scripture is the nature of their relationship. Adam has the responsibility to guard and to protect, to lead and to care. Eve has the responsibility to partner with Adam and join him in fulfilling this mandate that God has given. She is responsible to accept his leadership, something which there is no question of prior to the fall. But of course, there's lots of reasons to question it after the fall. Summarized in these early chapters, what we see is that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, equal in value, equal in worth, but different in responsibility and role. And God's design was that they would complement and complete one another like a two-piece puzzle. See, what begins as something feeling like there's something missing and there's something not good, it ends with this beautiful explanation of praise as Adam says, at last, this is the one, this is flesh of my flesh. This is what was missing. And now the problem is solved. But we go to the next chapter and we see the impact that the fall, that sin has on this created design. Adam's failure to lead his wife well leads to the downfall of humanity. You know, we can blame Eve, but it's really 
Adam's fault when all is said and done. After all, when they eat of the fruit of the tree, sin does enter the, the world and breaks God's created design. We see this, this beginning of shame, of hiding, of fear, of judgment, of promise. We see that God clothes them mercifully, that he exiles them from the garden, and then begins the entire scripture's goal of God bringing them back near to him, promising that one day one of their ancestors would restore that which was lost. That the seed, the child of Eve, would fix this. And so we see right from the beginning the importance of having Adam and Eve together. Now, it is true that within this narrative, Satan's initial attack is against Eve. He speaks to her. He offers her the fruit, knowing perhaps that this is an exceptionally effective way at getting to her husband. They both sin, but their sins differ. We have to wonder how the serpent and why the serpent was even in the garden in the first place if Adam was charged with guarding the garden and protecting it. Adam sins by abandoning his post as leader. Eve sins by abandoning her post as the complementary helper who was supposed to come alongside Adam so that they would thrive. The curse of sin immediately brings relational tension, pain in childbearing, overbearing leadership, manipulation, nagging, and so much more. And I don't say that in jest. That's what the scriptures teach. Before this story, there are no barren wombs. There's no sexual dysfunction. There's no abuse. There's no rape. There's no chauvinism. There's no seductive manipulation. And what's my point? My point is this. All of the things that our culture points to as reasons to eliminate gender all came after the fall. There's nothing wrong with God's created design. We're blaming the wound, and we're pointing to the wound and defining by the wound of the curse of sin. You know, perhaps there are a few places in Scripture where this reality is clearer than in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Within this passage, Paul is explaining that mankind rejects God's wisdom, mankind suppresses truth, and because of this, the consequence of their rejection is that God lets them go their own way. And that results not in progress, but in absolute chaos. Romans chapter 1, verse 22 says that claiming to be wise, they, the created people, became fools. And this is where we find ourselves today. The rejection of God's truth and wisdom led to God giving mankind up, over to his own desires. And Paul says in Romans 3 that it happened in three main areas, a corrupted heart, a corrupted body, and a corrupted mind. See, the illustration is that Paul acts as though God has mankind on a leash, and as mankind requests freedom, God gives them a longer leash, and they request more freedom, and he gives them a longer leash, and they request more freedom, so he unclips the leash, and they run right off the cliff like a lemming. That mankind's depraved heart changes his affections, which means that he worships created things rather than the creator. He worshiped things like sex and power and animals and trees and food and everything else under the sun. 
And that corrupt affection leads to a corrupt body. That's why it says in verse 24, God gave them up or God gave them over or God let them do whatever they wanted to do in the lust of their heart. And they began dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Because they abandoned God, God gave themselves to corruption and to worship false things, and that impacted their body. Paul says in verse 29, they were filled with all manner. Oh, I I skipped a part. Hold on a second. They were filled with all, I'm right. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, with, of evil, of covetousness, of malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and they're slanders. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're haughty. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I want you to consider these verses in this section through the lens of male and female that they abandoned the truth of God and they embraced a lie. They started loving things that were created instead of loving the creator. One of the first examples it gives in that section of Romans is homosexuality, which is really an idolizing idolizing of, of sex, an idolizing of passions, an idolizing of gender instead of worshiping the creator God. And then that continues, and it goes through all of these issues of relational tension, like strife and anger and fighting. What I want you to see is look how sin destroys God's perfect design. His perfect design of unity and diversity and complementary roles, that peace and that wholeness, that oneness, it's replaced because of sin with covetousness and jealousy and strife and deceit and sneakery. Words of love and affection have been replaced by slander and gossip and arrogance, bragging and ruthless infighting. Faithful relationships between a husband and wife have been replaced by faithlessness, by affairs, by heartlessness, by cruelty, and by folly. Confidence in who we are was replaced with shame. How has the fall impacted maleness and femaleness? Completely. But the way forward is not what the world tells you. See, we see in this passage in Romans chapter 1 that the world abandons God and its worship, and then that abandonment feeds into every kind of strife and evil. To disregard God something, and somehow think that the end result will be progress is only wisdom if the progress that you seek is self-destruction. Because the progress celebrated by society comes not from the word, but from a debased mind that is suppressing the truth. God giving us what we asked for. The Bible reveals to us that we do not choose our gender identity, but that God has revealed it in the body parts that we have been assigned. Now, there are rare cases of ambiguity in sexual organs, but these only underscore the catastrophic disruption of human sin upon every area of life, like a sexual cancer. As one commentator said, those afflicted by physical and sexual abnormalities are made in the image of God and loved by him. They need love and compassion and biblically informed care and the hope of the gospel where they can be new creations. We also realize as we consider what the scripture teaches on this topic that gender should 
also not be defined by cultural stereotypes. That not all women wear a Victorian dress while they paint sea landscapes and then go home to bake brownies. And not all men are Rambo. But there are expectations by design. And although we shouldn't cling to the stereotypes set up by culture, we should cling to what is clearly communicated in the Word of God. And so, at a very quick 30,000-foot level, what is clearly communicated in the Word of God? One, a husband is to be responsible to lead his family spiritually, to provide for them physically. In this way, he submits his plans and desires to the well-being of his family as he guards, protects, and furthers God's glory as he was commanded to do in the garden. Two, a wife is to submit herself voluntarily to her husband, unconditionally giving respect, not respect earned, as his complementary partner, realizing that they are designed to go together, not be at odds and animosity with one another, by which both will fail and they will get nothing done that God wants them to get done. Three, a husband is to unconditionally and self-sacrificially love his wife, acknowledging that she is different and that the areas that he may perceive as weakness are designed to give him pause and slow him down in a good way as God uses those things to make him more like Christ. That he is to seek her good, as defined by the word, at great cost to himself, as Jesus did for the church. For within the church, while all believers are equally equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ, the responsibility of authoritative teaching and leading is for gifted and duly appointed men. The scripture makes this clear because the church is supposed to be a macro version of the family. That's why you're not supposed to be allowed to lead the church if you can't lead your family, because this is the family of God. Now, we could preach a whole series on that statement that I just made, but I want to say this. I want to comment that the vast majority of women that I know who are the spiritual leaders in their home because their husband aren't believers or their husbands aren't walking with Christ, the vast majority of women that I know who are in that position would love nothing more than to see their husbands pick up the baton and run with it. For them, leadership isn't an issue of control, but of necessity because the husband is abdicating his God-given responsibilities. A friend of mine is a, past, is a pastor. She's a pastor in another, con, another cultural context, in a cultural context where the church is about 85% women and 15% men. And we've talked about this concept before, this topic. She knows that Revolve is very conservative. And as she said to me, Bill, I would want nothing more than for God to raise up a equipped and competent man to lead this church. And when that day comes, I would gladly step aside. You see, we can point to these things in our culture and we can get our back up, but the, even in the book of Judges, and we don't have time to go into it, Deborah leading in the book of Judges, that whole narrative of Deborah leading in the book of Judges is making fun of the man 
who won't lead and then gets killed at the end while another woman gives him a little bottle of milk before driving a tent stake through his skull. It's a mockery of the fact that the men are not leading in Israel. And so I want to make that clear. The biblical pattern is that the responsible, authoritative teaching for the church, for God's community, is given to the gifted and duly appointed men. That doesn't just mean any man. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you're gifted and duly appointed. But men, we should step up rather than getting our back up. The Bible recognizes, was this five? The Bible recognizes that culture is an expression of human society and that gender is expressed culturally. In other words, men and women dress differently. They have different hairstyles depending on the culture. That's not what makes you a man or a woman. Six, there is diversity within gender. As one author wrote that I read, Within the Bible, there are women who are cooks and seamstresses, women who help rebuild cities and judge Israel, who deal in real estate and run businesses and even kill God's enemies and judges with a tent stake. Likewise, there are men who are shepherds and farmers and metal workers and musicians and cooks and warriors and fighters. There are gentle and sensitive men who weep and embrace. Diversity does not contradict the different roles and responsibilities of women and men in marriage and ministry in the New Testament, but it does warn against rigid gender stereotypes. And my final point here is that a Christ-exalting marriage is the most intimate expression of God's gender design. That it is within Christ-exalting marriage that we see the beauty of unity and complementary roles. And that is why sexual relations within this context and only this context is beautiful but within another context, it becomes self-serving. As Paul says in the, in, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that when we have intercourse, we join ourselves. And he says, you can't join yourself beside your spouse and Christ. To join yourself to something else is to commit adultery, not just on your spouse, but on your Lord as well. See, but it's sad and true that these areas of design, God's beautiful design, are the exact areas that have been marred by sin. Jesus came to this earth in a gendered body, as a man. His roles and responsibilities, as revealed in the Gospels, were shaped by his gender. He had responsibilities as a man, as a son, as a brother, as a friend. In his risen and resurrected form, he continues to be a man, reigning at the right hand of his father as the beloved son. And this is not because God is male, for God is other. He's holy, holy, holy. But because in the hypostatic union, which Breton preached on, God and man, 100% God, 100% man, in the hypostatic union, Jesus took on sinful humanity's appearance of flesh. And our humanity is both sexed and gendered. And so Jesus was sexed and gendered in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in this new creation that Jesus plowed the way for, it is very much unlike what the world views gender. Unlike in Islam, men and women can both find peace in Christ and find heaven. 
Women aren't second-class citizens for procreation and pleasure. Marriage is a covenant now instead of a contract. That women are sisters and daughters of the king. Indeed, for all who are in Christ, we receive a new identity and the full inheritance of being a son, making us a co-heir with our big brother. The Bible actually says in Galatians chapter 3 that for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or, ma- free, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean that we can assign our gender at will, but that the deep divisions that belong to humanity are removed in Christ as we are now his body. That in Christ, as we are made more and more into his likeness, we are actually able to experience the beauty of God's design in his body of equality and diversity. So God created mankind in his image. According to his likeness, male and female, he created them. We are created with intrinsic equal value and importance, but with diverse complementary roles. Male and female are designed to go together like peanut butter and jelly, like salty and sweet. And without Christ, all we see are the tensions and the divisions, the differences and the struggles in our genders, the power play. But in Christ, we can experience the shadows and glimpses of how God created things to be. Now, I realize that for some of you, this is like, I don't even know why you're talking about this. This is so obvious. For others of you, this may seem like archaic themes that are separated by reality, the reality that you know in 2023. But to give you an idea, as I was studying and as I was reading commentaries, do you know that half of the commentaries, if you go look at your study Bible, look at your ESV study Bible, you won't find a comment on male and female. That's how much our culture has changed in the last 10 years. Reading commentaries that were written in 2012, 2008, they don't even talk about gender because it used to be a non-question. But not anymore. But I encourage you not to emulate your ancient ancestors who sought to determine right and wrong for themselves. And so ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The creator of all things knows that his design works best. Can I drive a drywall screw into the wall with a hammer? Probably. But it's not very effective. Can I trim my bushes with a lawnmower if I hold it up? Probably. But I'll also maybe lose a hand. See, God's purpose for us is designed. Maleness and femaleness. And we need to stop letting ourselves be defined by our culture, by what we see on TV, by what we read in the news, by what we see in our movies, our literature, our favorite authors. I count myself blessed to be in a marriage where we strive to live out God's created design together. I consider myself blessed to have a wife who compliments me and who wants to pursue Christ alongside me and who doesn't just engage in a constant tug of war with me. 
And I want to say to you very honestly that there are few joys that can come close to comparing to chasing after Jesus with your spouse. Gina teaches me about the gospel, and I teach her about the gospel. And as we serve one another, as we submit to one another, and as we love one another, as we respect one another, as we rebuke one another, as we sharpen one another, we both become more like the God that we desire to serve. We both, individually and collectively, become more like the image of Christ because we are one flesh, and this is God's beautiful design. Has our marriage perfect? By no means. But it has taught us more about the gospel than perhaps anything else. Now, I realize that this sermon is a very broad view of this topic, which you could write a tome about. But this is the thing I want you to remember through it. We do not turn to our culture. We do not turn to academia. We do not turn to our experiences that have been negative. We do not turn to our spouse's faults. And we do not turn to our feelings to determine these things. We turn to the unchanging word of God. And the one who builds his life on that foundation does so on firm and solid footing. But to build your life and your marriage on anything else is to build on shifting sand. And when the waves come, the house will fall. I realize these are complex things. You have questions. You disagree. That's okay. You can come talk with us. You can come and ask the elders your questions. You can come and read the word with us. And we'd be glad to do so. Because these are not easy waters to navigate in today's day and age. But we do need to navigate them and not just bury our head in the sands. And we do need to instruct our children in them because they're growing up in a world where this is not commonplace. And they're being told what I just said is crazy and chauvinistic and cruel. But God knows best. Let's pray. Father, I know that these are difficult topics in today's day and age. And so I pray that you would give us the mercy and grace that we need in order to truly hear what you want us to hear, that we might build our life on your truth and not build our life on our own feelings. God, the human heart is wicked and deceitful, and we cannot trust it. And so let us trust in you. Amen. Would you stand real quick, please?